Hey everyone, it's Marvin. This episode of Books and Boba is sponsored by Mai Theater in New York City and their upcoming production of Once Upon a Korean Time. Founded in 1989, Mai Theater Company is a professional, award-winning, nonprofit 501c3 organization whose primary mission is to develop and produce new and innovative plays by Asian American writers. They're a great theater company out in New York who has distinguished themselves as one of the country's leading incubators of new works shaping local and national conversations about what it means to be Asian American today. Their latest production, Once Upon a Korean Time, is a generation-spanning new journey through the historical and fantastical. Mixing traditional Korean fables with the horrors of the Korean War, Daniel K. Isaac's epic new play is a funny and deeply moving analog for the experiences of the Korean-American diaspora. Isaac deftly moves his characters through time, tracing the legacies of trauma that are passed down from one generation to the next, and the various coping mechanisms each one uses to soldier on. The show features sea kings, bubbles, tigers, generational traumas, and of course, barbecue, and is the professional playwriting debut for Daniel K. Isaac, um, who, who previously acted on Billions, The Chinese Lady, and of course made an appearance on a previous iteration of Haikus for Hotties. Previews begin August 23rd at La Mama's Ellen Stewart Theater in New York City and will be there for a limited engagement until September 18th. So if you are in the New York area or plan to make a trip to New York in the coming weeks, um, definitely check it out. Tickets are now available at maitheater.org. There will be a link in the show notes, but if you're curious, the website is ma-yitheater.org. That's right. It's theater with an R-E, so you know it's fancy. And if you do attend the show, please let us know. Rira and I are stuck here on the West Coast, so we won't be able to make it. But we do want to hear your thoughts on the play as well. All right. Now on with the show. You're listening to... Whoa! Hot luck. Hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we're bringing you an amazing author interview with author Tracy Lian about her debut novel, All That's Left Unsaid, a suspense thriller uh, about a journalist who goes back home to investigate the mysterious violent death of her baby brother. Yeah, but the book is set in 1990s uh, Cabramatta, which is a new setting for us because uh, even though we've read books by Asian Australian authors, I think this is the first time where we've read a book where it was set in Australia. So it was really interesting uh, talking to Tracy about the diaspora there and her process and how um, her upbringing uh, influenced uh, the characters in her novel. Yeah, it was a great chat. Um, I had a great time reading the book as well. Um, it really, I mentioned this in the interview, but Asian, the Asian diaspora community in the 90s is such a, it's a time that I wish more books would touch on. And, you know, even though I did not grow up in this Asian enclave in Australia, I definitely related to it as someone who grew up in an Asian enclave in America as well. Um, so um, we had a really great chat with Tracy and I hope you enjoy. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Shinyi Pai, host of the podcast Blue Suit. In a world full of stuff, what do we choose to hold on to? The Blue Suit is a podcast about commonplace objects and the people who transform them into something remarkable. From an inherited Chinese English dictionary to an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II, our podcast showcases modern day artifacts of Asian America and what gets elevated to heirloom status. Find it by searching for The Blue Suit wherever you get your podcasts. And we are here with Tracy Lean, and we are going to be talking about her debut novel, All That's Left Unsaid. Welcome, Tracy, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, your debut novel is set in Cabramatta, one of Australia's largest Vietnamese communities. And you also grew up in that community. Uh, so, if you could just tell us what it was like growing up as part of the diaspora there, because Marvin and I, you know, we're Asian Americans, and that is a totally different experience from Asian Australians. Yeah, so I grew up in the Cabramatta area. And I think when you grow up in an ethnic community, you you have a tendency to take it for granted. You know, I thought, oh, every Asian person grew up like this. Um, and it was quite a culture shock to me when I went to college and was surrounded by white people and I was like, oh, okay, so I don't really know how to navigate this. And then I encountered an Asian person in my communications class and was like, cool, my people. Um, and then you know, <laughs> struck up a conversation with this person only to hear them have like the thickest Aussie drawl ever. And uh, yeah, th- I think they told me, oh yeah, my grandparents were born here. And I was like, wait, what? Like, how is that possible? <laughs> so um, I think it was... Um, I felt very sheltered in that community. Um, I felt very insulated, but it was a really wonderful, vibrant, colorful upbringing. Um, And yeah, I've been looking for the equivalent of Cabramatta in America. You know, I've been to the San Gabriel Valley and, you know, uh, Little Saigon. um, And it's nothing is quite the same as Cabramatta. Yeah, I think I grew up in also in an enclave here in San Gabriel. And, you know, our, our community is mostly Chinese and Vietnamese. Um, but definitely, I get the feeling of, like, feeling insulated, right? Because, you know, you kind of grow up amongst people who look like you. And it's not until you go onto the real world where it's like, oh, man, I'm a minority. Yeah, like, all my friends and I, and it was like, we were a big group, you know, I remember in elementary school, there were like 10 of us. And, and in high school, there was another big group. And we were all from the same background, like all our parents were, uh, you know, refugees from Vietnam, many of whom could also speak Chinese. And so I thought that that was really common, only to discover, no, that was, that was not <laughs> common at all. Yeah. So, you know, we love to hear the stories of our author's journeys uh, to becoming published novelists. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, what what brought you to writing All That's Left Unsaid? So before I wrote this novel, I was a news reporter. Um, but I think it helps to go way back in time to when I was a teenager and I loved magazines. And my magazine of choice uh, when I was like in seventh grade was called Dolly. And it's sort of the Australian equivalent of Seventeen or Teen Vogue. And what I really loved about it were like the human interest 
pieces in which you would read this 600-word article about another teenager and it would change the way you saw the world in some small way. So, for example, I, I still remember this one article about this teenage surfer who had her arm bit off by a shark. And then oh my God, she, I remember the story. Yeah. Right, right. And she recovered and continued surfing. And it's like, dang, like you don't forget certain things like that. Um, and so when I realized that, oh, that's a profession, like I could have a full-time job in which I tell other people's stories. And in telling these stories, I have the potential to change the way they see the world, even in some small way. Like as a 13, 14 year old, I was like, yes, this is the path I'm going to be on. Um, And then when I interned at Dolly later on, when I was 17, I was like, oh, no, no way. I don't think Team Max are for me anymore. (laughs) But I still really wanted to be a journalist. I think I had just outgrown the Team Mags that I had grown up on. Um, So studied journalism in college, um, became a video game journalist briefly. Um, Oh, man, that's so cool. Yeah. And then I ended up in America where I worked for Vox Media um, and then eventually the LA Times where I was a business and tech reporter um, in the Bay Area. And it was a job I absolutely loved. I had the best editors, best colleagues, you know, dream job. Um, And then Donald Trump got elected and my job changed quite a bit where every day was a new crisis And while a lot of journalists thrive on that sort of thing, it it really wasn't for me. And, you know, when I reflected on why did I get into this, you know, why as a 13, 14 year old was I interested in journalism? I came back to that idea of I wanted to tell stories that would stay with people or had the potential to stay with people. And I felt that if I was just sort of in crisis mode every day um, and whatever story I wrote today would be irrelevant by tomorrow, that wasn't really fulfilling my goals anymore. Um, So I had a real identity crisis at that moment because I was 30 and had wanted to be a journalist since I was 13. And it was the only thing I'd ever wanted to do. And it was the only thing I'd done up until that point. So I was like, if I'm not a journalist anymore, then then who am I? What am I? Um, And fortunately, I had a really great editor at the LA Times who sort of said, have you considered like leaving and getting an MFA? And I said, I have no idea what an MFA is. I've never considered doing grad school in America. And he said, well, you know, you could learn to write fiction if that interests you. And um, once you have a master's degree, you could teach if that interests you. And I saw that as an opportunity to just buy some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, So I applied to a bunch of programs, was accepted by the University of Kansas, moved to Kansas. And I went in thinking, okay, I'm going to learn a new skill, going to learn to write fiction. And if it turns out that I don't like this, I can always go back to journalism afterwards. Um, And while I was there, I wrote all that's left unsaid. And I haven't looked back. Wow. I Sorry, when you were telling your story, I was just getting flashbacks of that moment in time in 2016 where like, you're right, it was constant crises. Every day we were just rooting about the next thing that happened and i mean it was exhausting for us as like readers i'm sure it was extra exhausting for you guys in, in the press just to have yeah you i remember <laughs> i remember on election night it was maybe like 9 30 we were waiting for the results to be called and the plan was look if if hillary wins go to bed yeah, there's nothing for you to write about as a member of the technology business reporting team <laughs> 
But if she loses, then we, we can, like, you're working through the night. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> right? And that, and suddenly everything um, sort of was overshadowed by that. Every tech story I wanted to tell, every business story was through the lens of, okay, but under a Trump administration, what does this mean? Or what does this new crisis mean for Silicon Valley and tech? Um, and yeah, that was just a bit much for me. Mm. Well, I'm glad you were able to find your pivot because um, your debut novel is something that I've wanted to read for a long time. I've always told people that I want to see someone do a story about the Asian diaspora community in the 90s because it's a, it's a very specific thing. And even though my experience in the San Gabriel Valley in the 90s is different than yours in Australia, the similarities are still there because I also grew up amongst a Vietnamese enclave. You know, I'm Chinese, but most of my friends are Vietnamese. Most of my friends' parents came as refugees. Um, so, yeah, it was something that I've been looking for for a long time. And what led you to decide to write about this specific point in time? Yeah, when I was in my MFA program, I started out by writing short stories because it seemed like a, a less intimidating thing to do. And I found that most of my stories were written from the point of view of young Asian Australian girls in Cabramatta in the 90s. And a classmate pointed this out to me and they asked, oh, are you working on a short story collection? And I said, well, no, I, I don't think so. Um, but clearly I'm circling something if I keep coming back to this place and this time. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that what I was trying to capture in all of these stories was letting people know how it feels, like how it felt for me grow, being a kid in the 90s, um, Asian in Australia. And you know, the more I sort of turned that stone in my pocket, the more I realized that it, it was about challenging the myth of the model minority. You know, growing up in Australia, you might have had this in America as well, but I was told that you know, you're as Aussie as they come, you belong, you'll get a fair go, and that Australia really loves multiculturalism. And I genuinely believed that. But at some point, I realized that this wasn't true and that it didn't apply to me or to people who looked like me. I realized that my citizenship was conditional. It was conditional on my impeccable behavior. It was conditional on my gratitude. And if I ever did anything to step out of line, then I risked being perceived as a nuisance or worse as a threat. And like we've seen a version of this play out very recently in America with the pandemic, where Asian Americans, once the success stories were overnight carriers of the so-called Kung flu. Um, and, you know, being on the receiving end of that sort of fear and hate, um, you feel gaslighted socially. It's confusing. It's frustrating. Um, but it's also dangerous. You know, like we've seen people get like assaulted and killed over stuff like this. And so that was what I wanted to write about. Um, and so, you know, reflecting on the stories I had written, I started sort of just writing in that direction a bit more. Um, and I had this idea and I thought at the time it was brilliant where I was going to write a short story novel hybrid where between every chapter there'd be a short story. Um, and then I did a few chapters and I was like, no, this is terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like the, the novel part of it was following a character named Key Tran, 
uh, who was, you know, trying to find answers to her brother's death. And, and that seemed more compelling at the time. And so I was like, okay, let's set the short stories aside and let's follow this character and see where she goes. Yeah. The book definitely captures how it feels. I, I think we all, as I guess, members of the Asian diaspora, understand what it is, right? Even at the beginning of the book, when um, he meets one of her old teachers and he immediately calls her Kai because that's just what he defaults to. That is something, as someone with a really tough last name, um, something that I instantly related to. And, you know, again, because I had a lot of Vietnamese friends, like their last names are butchered left and right, even though we lived in an enclave. A lot of Nguyen's and dongs and you know yeah like in in my community so in australia like the surname Nguyen is isn't pronounced win like it is in america it's pronounced Nguyen. um and then we would butcher it further sometimes for fun by calling them like nugan um so like we would make fun of the people who made fun of us um mostly as a coping mechanism but yeah our last names were always butchered Yeah, like the first page of your book, it's a letter to readers. And like you said, you wanted people to know how it feels. And to me, like your book really reminded me a lot of the points that Kathy Park Hong uh, says in her book, Minor Feelings, because your book really digs deep into those minor feelings and uh, just like the model minority myth and how citizenship is conditional. Um, so I don't know when you started writing this, but was it during the pandemic? Was it during the, um, anti-Asian, uh, hate movement? I started writing this in 2019. So just before, and I had finished a first draft by the time the pandemic began. And I think what the pandemic sort of reinforced for me was that I was on the right track because when I first started writing, I, I second guessed myself from time to time, you know, and I think that's part of the the myth of the model minority, which is that you sometimes don't know if it's all in your head or if you are actually being treated differently because like, surely it's not me, but mate, what if it is just me? Um, and so when the pandemic hit and we saw the wave of anti-Asian violence, I was like, okay, it's not just me. You know, my suspicion that I've been writing about, you know, here's evidence, like indisputable evidence. Um, So it emboldened me to keep going and to not pull any punches as I was writing because I was very concerned in the early stages that, you know, what what if I'm wrong? What if my feelings are wrong? Um, And, yeah, it turns out they, they really weren't. Yeah, isn't that strange that we're so used to making ourselves small and dismissing our feelings? And it's like, it's our own lived experience. Of course, we're correct, but we're just told constantly that we're overreacting. And it doesn't help that uh, in in like the media, they really downplay a lot of um, the hate crimes that happen. They say, oh, this is unfortunate. Like this has nothing to do with their race. And it's like, are you sure about that? There, there's a pattern mm-hmm. that's happening. <laughs> right. Or being told to take a joke when you are the joke. Um, I think, you know, we've been conditioned to sort of 
let things slide because it can be really hard to take up every fight, you know, especially when there aren't a lot of, you don't feel like you have a lot of allies in the moment. You know, if you're hanging out with a group of people, someone makes a joke at your expense. Is anyone standing up for you? And if you stand up for yourself, is that, does it feel worth it in the moment? Or is it just going to be exhausting? Are you going to make other people uncomfortable? Um, are you drawing too much attention to yourself? And I think Charles Yu writes about this really well in Interior Chinatown, which is like we feel, we, we know we're being mistreated but we don't feel that we have a place to speak up about it. Like it's not our place to complain about this. Others have it worse um, and others have it worse in much more egregious ways. Um, so then we're just sort of stuck and we're stuck with these feelings and we feel a little bit crazy. Um, and I think with my book, I just want to, you know, tell some readers, you're not crazy. If you have felt this, it's because it's real. Yeah, I feel like uh, the last two years, it's been a reckoning, a rude reckoning for a lot of people. Um, and in your book, Key seems to be an adamant believer in the model of minority myth, uh, believing that, you know, if she works hard, puts her head down, she'll uh, be successful, while her best friend, Minnie, doesn't buy into it. Uh, can you tell us more about how you develop these two girls' friendship and how this core difference really created a rift between them as adults? Yes. So I really wanted to explore the complexities of female friendship because I think that few relationships are ever as intense as... Oh, yeah, get, 100%. <laughs> right. When you get two teenage girls together, like they will probably love and hate each other in equal measure. And it's such a bizarre relationship that really gets repeated. <laughs> so I wanted to delve into that, just how how tense it can be, but also how filled with love it can be. Um, and then so with Key, you know, she is someone who has bought into the myth of the model minority, as you said. She believes if she just works hard, it will pay off. And there are two things that are sort of like a reckoning for her. One is having a close friend push back against that and really challenge her. And I knew I needed someone to just say the thing that she needed to hear. And Minnie was just rebellious enough and outspoken enough to be the one to just say it. But then the other was I wanted her to sort of, as she's investigating her brother's murder, to discover that he, he isn't perfect. You know, like at the start of the book, he's presented as like the valedictorian, He's, he is the model minority. Oh, my God, he comes first in everything. He's going to be a doctor. Um, and, and she sees that as this is why he deserves a, a fair investigation. This is why it was such an injustice that he was killed. But then as she goes along, she s starts learning that her brother wasn't actually perfect. But in discovering all of this, she still believes he deserves a fair investigation and she still believes he deserved to keep living. And so I think that's also challenging um, it's sort of reflecting my own journey in emerging from my belief in the myth of the modern minority in that you shouldn't have to be perfect to be worthy. You shouldn't have to be perfect to be treated with dignity and respect and to get a fair go. Um, and so these two characters, her brother and Minnie, sort of function together to prod her out of the lie she's been living. Yeah, I really like the fact that Minnie is kind of like her subconscious for like a large portion of the book, she's the one in the back of her mind saying like, are you sure? 
like this is correct like are like you're you should really dig deeper and um i thought it was really interesting that you made key a journalist because uh she seems to type who was taught like keep your head down don't draw attention and as a journalist your entire job is to draw attention uh to an issue and you know if you are a, a reporter of color that comes with a lot of responsibility and of course you see key like when she finds out that the police haven't really talked to anybody and just kind of gave up because um they've kind of assumed that Denny was a, a junkie because that's the neighborhood that they live in. Um, she's like, well, let me talk to them because I'm part of the community. And I thought that was um, like, I, I thought that was a really interesting role that you gave her. Yeah, I knew from the beginning that Key was going to be a very anxious, reserved person. And so I asked myself, how do I get this Hyper anxious person to go do like this unthinkable thing, which is track down the witnesses to your own brother's murder and interrogate them. And I was like, well, you know, if she had some journalism training, then perhaps she could then slip into journalist mode and sort of suspend some of that fear and just get the job done. But then the other thing, coming back to your point about like Minnie is sort of in Key's subconscious. And a lot of the time when she's hearing Minnie's voice, that's her making it up. Minnie's not actually there. And I think that just reveals the multifaceted nature of Key and of all of us, which is that we're not these one dimension and, oh, she's a meek, quiet, good Asian girl. You know, she, there is a side of us all that's thinking critically, that is perhaps a little bit pissed off, um, that, you know, is maybe hidden back there out of day to day necessity, but it's all there. And we all have it in us to be courageous and outspoken and opinionated and to do really hard things, even if that's not um, the primary quality of our personalities. Um, so, yeah, I really wanted to sort of make her multifaceted in that way. Yeah. Your book takes place in the aftermath of a, like a violent death um, of a loved one from a perspective of like a community that sees tangibility in these concepts of luck and karma, right? Like the idea that if something bad happens to you, it's because you were bad. And because of that, the community refuses to acknowledge the death, right? They don't attend the funeral. They don't talk about it. You know, there's also a distrust of law enforcement, so they don't talk to the cops neither. And so all of that serves to, you know, stymie and act as a as a challenge for for Key to to solve. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with like Key's mother, she's all about like she says like I don't want an autopsy. It doesn't change anything, and um, really, she doesn't want to know, which is the complete opposite of Key. And it really reminded me of uh, the Atlanta spa shootings because a lot of people were saying like. How come the names haven't been released? How come we don't know anything about these women? And it's true that like we don't want the voices of um, the Asian American community to be silenced, but also 
the Asian culture is, you know, karma, and you just kind of want to bury those feelings away. And I thought you portrayed that like contrast of uh, culture and uh, just like belief in karma really well. Yeah, I was trying to not make any value judgments um, about the actions of the characters because, you know, I, I grew up in Australia. I have a very Western way of thinking. Um, so when I hear about ideas around karma or luck or, you know, the superstitions that, you know, the people in my life have, I have a ten- tendency to be like, yeah, whatever. Like, <laughs> that's that's not legit. Um, but, you know, for the for, in writing this story, I tried to suspend that. And I tried to get into their heads and and perform the exercise of, okay, this person believes that what they have done is right. So what, what life have they lived to get them to that point? What experiences have they had that in that moment they can believe that they did the right thing? Um, and so it was sort of this like, super empathy (laughs) exercise um, to try to understand each character better. Like one of my characters, Flora, she's the wedding singer. And sometimes when I reread her chapter, I initially think she is frustratingly passive. Like how can she just let the world walk all over her like that? You know, me as an outspoken Western person, I'm like, don't don't let people do that to you. Um, But she believes that she's doing the right thing. And so how does she justify that to herself? And so I allowed myself to go back in time with her to when she's six. Um, What happened when she was six? What happened when she was 10? What are the pivotal moments in her life that shaped that decision in 1996? Um, And so that's what I tried to do for every character. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you gave up on that idea of putting short stories in between all your chapters, but there's still kind of short stories in between your chapters. Yeah, you use shifting POVs throughout the book. <laughs> yes, um, it was it was really enjoyable to write from other points of view, and I liked the experiment of each cap- each character gets one chapter besides Key, and that's it. You hear from them once, and you don't get to hear from them again. So that was a fun uh, craft thing to try out. But the other reason I wanted so many different uh, points of view was because I wanted to push back against the idea that any community is a monolith. So all these characters, they live in the same place. They speak in the, speak the same language. Um, they have the same refugee background. They all witness the same murder. And they all refuse to speak, but for very different reasons. And so I wanted to show that even though these people share all these superficial similarities, their motivations and who they are on the inside is so different. And so you can't paint any community with, you know, broad strokes. Um, So yeah, that was the reason for it. Yeah. I think you did a really good job because the whole time I was reading the story and those characters, I was like, yes, this is just like Asia is not a monolith put on page. I I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I paid a lot of attention to the most recent American federal election and just hearing, um, a lot of news stories describe like the Asian American vote. It's like, well, they're a pretty big and diverse group of people, you know, like there you've got your Japanese Americans, you've got your Filipino Americans. It's like 
you know, the fact that everyone is grouped together as though there's a hive mind, that's just not accurate. Um, And so I wanted to depict some of that in the novel. Yeah, and I like the fact that you uh, bring up like class differences within the same refugee community as well. Um, Like Key's family is not that well off, but you find out later that they used to be well off and that is why they were able to uh, leave Vietnam so early on. Uh, Whereas like Minnie's family, they are in a poorer situation And you also hear about a classmate whose father is a doctor and how they are ranked higher in the hierarchy of girls at their school. And I thought that was like really well done as well, because um, obviously economic background is going to define a lot of your values as a kid growing up. Yes, absolutely. I think back on how sensitive the school hierarchy was in terms of where you ranked based on how pretty were you, whether you had like the latest Barbie or Pokemon cards, uh, what kind of lunch you brought to school, what kind of like after school activities you did, if any, you know, like the kid whose family put them in after school sports, like that was like, whoa, you know, they must be really rich or they must have really engaged parents. Either way, that's currency. <laughs> um, and then you had like the rest of us with our, you know, pork floss sandwiches who went home and watched a bunch of TV after school. It's like we were in our own group. And then there were like the kids who didn't even have that. Um, and so, yeah, I think as a child, you become, you're very sensitive to these differences that adults might not pick up on. Yeah. Um, going back to like the different POVs throughout your book, my favorite POV was actually Denny's white geography teacher. Uh, I thought she was such a intriguing addition to, uh, I-, I guess like the short story chapters. Uh, what compelled you to include her POV? Because, uh, in contrast with the other white teachers at the school, she's actually trying. She's trying her best, but obviously is falling short. It's great to hear you say that because Sharon Falk is my favorite character. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So she is the one white character in the book who gets her own chapter. And what I love about her is that she does some really cringeworthy things She's an incredibly well-intentioned white woman who keeps screwing up in major ways, but she keeps trying because I think there's a tendency amongst well-intentioned people, myself included, where if you get something wrong or if you get called out, um, your instinct is to get defensive or to get resentful, right? And that is probably the worst thing you can do when you've gotten something wrong, whereas for her, she she does her best, she comes up short, and she tries again the next day because her best tomorrow might be good enough. And I think that's something really admirable and something that I try to do, you know, whenever I get caught out for something, like, don't get defensive, just listen and figure out how you can do better tomorrow. And I think that's a small step everyone can take. Um, you know, and and so, yeah, I had fun skewering her, but I also had fun you know, sort of laying out the example that she sets. 
Yeah, like some of my favorite scenes with her was um, when she goes to counseling and she's talking with um, a Vietnamese Australian uh, counselor who used to be her student, which is a weird relationship overall. But just like the conversations that they have, obviously they're venturing into very uncomfortable topics. And it's very easy to be bigoted and to just cast judgments. But, uh, you know, she actually listens to the counselor's experiences and explanations for uh, why some of the things that she's done in class was cringe and not acceptable um, in a very gentle way. And I was like, huh, I feel like we don't have those conversations anymore. I feel like there is a lot of outrage and people are just not willing to listen, especially on the internet. Yeah, I don't think America has a very good redemption narrative. Or at least oh, I should no, say, maybe, maybe, the in, maybe the internet doesn't have a very good redemption <laughs> narrative where, you know, you mess up once and there, very rarely is there an opportunity for you to learn from it and Im- improve or to you know, make amends. It's always like you did something wrong, you're a horrible person. And I think that sort of harsh reaction can lead to you know, defensiveness, which leads to resentment, which leads to a certain radicalization. Um, and I think it's it's really unproductive, you know, to just have people shouting at each other all the time and, and feeling awful. Um, whereas I think Sharon, again, it's not easy for her to hear that she has done some unintentionally racist things. Um, but the fact that she's willing to listen and learn from it, I think that's huge. And I think we could all benefit from doing more of that. Yeah. I think, you know, this is a good example of representation matters and the representation of white people doing the right thing once in a while is is good representation. They should, they should learn from her as a role model. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, she's also a good example of someone who, you know, so many people are well-intentioned, but they just have never been challenged. You know, like they have certain views and they think they're doing the right thing, but they are normally surrounded by other white people who don't see anything wrong with their actions. And so her encounter with her students and with Lena Lau, the counselor, is the first time in which she's told, actually, that wasn't great. (laughs) And, you know, she's very receptive to that. So, yeah, I, I think she could be a good role model for white people too. One of the most uh, like poignant scenes in your book, uh, it's actually early on. It's when he is at the police station and there is this group of um, Asian Australian kids. Not all of them are uh, Vietnamese Australian. Some of them are Cambodian uh, descent, but they were arrested for loitering and their guardians are called in and... <laughs> The Guardians don't know what's happening, why they were arrested. Um, and there's just like a lot of, you know, they're they're angry at the kids and they're shouting. However, they need the kids help to fill out the paperwork. And it was such a a brutal and beautiful way to show that that burden and responsibility of children of immigrants, especially children of uh, refugee uh, families. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, that role that you put into uh, Key and Minnie and all of the other characters in the book? 
Yeah, I think the children of immigrants and the children of refugees tend to feel responsible for their parents. I think sometimes they feel the need to protect their parents by withholding information. Um, you know, I think of how you know children of refugees and immigrants often have to translate for their parents and. Um, sometimes you might hear things that are better left untranslated. For example, if someone were to insult your family, to call you a slur, do you translate that? Or do you, as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, keep that to yourself? Um, You know, I think everyone at some point realizes that their parents are not invincible and that their parents can't protect them from everything. And the children of refugees perhaps arrive at that conclusion a lot earlier. And so I do feel that for some people, it can be a burden that is often unacknowledged. Who do you talk to about it when you're a kid? Um, You know, and if all your friends are in the same position, then it's just sort of assumed that, oh, this is something we all have to do. There's nothing left to say about it. Um, So, yeah, I really wanted to highlight just the difficult position that a lot of children of refugees and immigrants can be put in. And it's one of those, like, things you maybe don't actively think about, but it weighs on you. And it's something that a lot of other kids don't have to think about and never have to deal with. But it's just just another thing that's on your shoulders um, that pe- that doesn't get discussed. Yeah. And like he is put into such a difficult position. She's grieving her brother's murder as well. But she has to take on the mantle of, you know, asking for the police report and just figuring out what happened. And, you know, like that is a responsibility that, you know, a lot of parents, a non, non-immigrant non parents would have taken, but, you know, she has to take it because she is the eldest daughter and she is um, the bridge to Australia for her parents. Yeah, and she, the thing is, like, she'll, she'll never tell her parents about what she's doing. She'll never tell her parents how hard it is because, um, you know, one of the points I tried to make in the book is that you know, if if you grow up being told by your family how lucky you are, you know, you're getting all the opportunities that we didn't get. Therefore, your life should be easier. And then it turns out your life isn't easy. Well, it's different. It's still, it's easier in some ways, but not in others. You feel like you can't really complain. Yeah. Yeah. Surviving is not the same thing as living. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like, like there is a chapter where um he's father like it's from his perspective and he talks about how you know like they left for a better life but in his opinion the better life was back in Vietnam before the war and you know i feel like a lot of children of immigrants we forget that our parents had lives before us and they had dreams before us And it's one of the weirdest things when you realize that your parents are people (laughs) with their (laughs) own desires and disappointments. And um, yeah, it's something I've talked to a lot of my Asian friends about, um, which is, you know, um, I guess this idea that, you know, your parents like immigrated to give you a better life. But a better life means allowing you to choose 
what you want to do, but they won't allow that. You know, for them, a better life is you choosing what they would have wanted to do. Um, and that can lead to a lot of tension and conflict, especially in immigrant households. Um, so, yeah, that was in sort of having Key's father reflect on that and have, having him say, you know, I didn't realize that a better life would mean that they would grow up speaking terrible Vietnamese. I didn't realize that a better life would mean that they wouldn't know me or respect me or listen to me. <laughs> like, is this what we really signed up for? Have we made a mistake? Yeah. And, you know, that's even assuming that you signed up to move. Like a lot of families in, especially refugee communities, you know, they're refugees. They they moved because they had to, to, to escape violence and because their country did, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So to to sort of escape a terrible situation um, and then to end up somewhere that has promised like this, this is going to be better. Like, thank God we got here. Um, and then to have your children grow up in a way that is completely foreign to you. I, yeah. I think that's probably very challenging for a lot of parents. Yeah. And the parents, a lot of them have PTSD and, you know, like they're grappling with what happened to them. But at the same time, they have to raise these kids and make sure that they survive. And, you know, it's a different type of burden compared to uh, what their children have to go through. They're protecting each other, but at the same time, they hurt each other. And I really liked Key's relationship with her mother. Uh, just that phenomenon where you're an adult and you go back to your parents' house and you just revert to being a teenager again. And just like a lot of the fighting, I was like, oh my God, this is my life. Like I <laughs> I could 100%. 100% relate to this. Yes. Every like, how does this happen? <laughs> I am an adult. I like, you know, like I worked so hard to not be like my parents and to be mature. But as soon as uh, you go back under your parents' roof, it's just that same tension is there. <laughs> yeah, I can now time it. Like if I go home, how many hours do I have before I turn into 14-year-old Tracy. <laughs> and it's like yeah. probably less than 24 hours. And bam, I am just petulant and uh, not great to be around. <laughs> oh, it's the moment they open their mouths and like criticize you for something. <laughs> yes, yes. They criticize yeah. your weight or what you're wearing or the type of suitcase you brought or the way you packed your suitcase. It's... Uh, you never know or what you're, you're not get. married or just, you know, like or when are you going to have their kids? advice? <laughs> that's not really an advice. And then they get mad because, uh, you know, in their country, you would never talk back. And it's just a clash of love languages. You know, like we yes. grew up wanting our parents to tell us they love us, but that's not actually a love language for a lot of Asian cultures. That's true. When yeah, they ask I, us, when they tell us we got fat, they're like asking, "Are you? Is your heart okay? Are you? Are you is your and when they okay? tell you you're too skinny, they're like really asking, "Do you have enough to eat?" Um, but yeah, the, I think the the conflicting love languages thing is something that I've only very recently started understanding. You know, because previously, whenever I went home, I would just be incredibly frustrated. And that was like my my one note emotion for however many weeks I was home. And 
I'd say in the in recent years, I've understood, like I've started interpreting their actions as a love language. And that makes it, that buys me a little more time before I lose my shit. <laughs> like it, yeah. it, it buys me a little more patience um, when dealing with them. Yeah, but just because they love you and show it to you in a different way doesn't mean that you know, their abuse and neglect is uh, valid. And I feel like that is, that is like a, a revelation that a lot of uh, Asian diasporans go through in their adulthood. They're like, was this abuse? I mean, it was, <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, my family didn't go through like therapy. It didn't really exist. And they're from a different culture and they do love me. They'll, you know, die for me but it doesn't mean that all the things that they did to me was okay and I really like the fact that you showed uh like the consequences of uh their parenting and just how generational trauma can affect uh the next generation yeah yeah I I really think that um yeah sometimes I wonder you know what would our upbringings have been like if all our parents went to therapy. Like that would be I, the answer is looking at parents now because I'm Ooh. seeing a lot of like Asian American millennial parents and just seeing how they're taking care of their children and how mm. uh, they're just having open conversation. And I'm like, oh, conversation. That's not really something that uh, a lot of families had. So soft. in our generation, back in my day, we had no conversation. <laughs> Yeah. We sat at the dinner table in very awkward silence. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like one thing I arrived at that sort of puts me in a slightly healthier place than I used to be in terms of my relationship with my family is realizing that I don't need their approval because I have something better, which is their love. Like they love me unconditionally. Will they ever fully understand why I chose to be a journalist or what I do for a living or why I moved to America or anything like that? Unlikely. Will they ever like really approve it and endorse it? Also unlikely. But, you know, I think when I sold my novel um, and I told my parents and a few months later, my mom texted me on WhatsApp and said, you know, we're proud of you. And I read it and I was like, oh, that, this feels weird. I don't like this. Take it back. Uh, but what I realized was it wasn't that satisfying, my life is complete now moment that for a long time I thought I would have if I, uh, if my parents were proud of me. You know, in, instead it was just sort of like an, huh, okay, thanks, thank you. Like, I appreciate that. Um, and I think I, I realized in that moment that I was already full and I was filled with the unconditional love that they had for me. And knowing that they loved me, regardless of what I did with my career, it was like, that was enough. Anything else is going to just be overflow. <laughs> um, and so she hasn't mentioned that she's proud of me since. And I'm totally OK with that. <laughs> well, just wait until you get featured on some the Vietnamese newspaper. Then then the, then the that's oh, when I, you know you've made it. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, the free supplement that comes out like every Saturday, like it'll probably get framed. <laughs> um, so we're winding down to the end of our time. Um, I just want to ask 
Do you have a preference? Do you have a favorite cover? Because you have three different covers for your book. And um, I mean, my personal favorite is the Australian one. And I was just like, why did we, the Americans, not get this cover? I love my three covers equally for different Mm -hmm. reasons. So I love the American one. Like as soon as I saw it, I was like, yes, we don't need to make any changes to this. Let's just go with it. Because I love a a bold cover. You know, like the colors are really bright. They've really gone in like with the, the white bold font. It's something that will pop out on a bookshelf. Um, and I find the colors to be really Australian. Like there's something about the blue, yellow, and red, like the particular shade of it, that when I look at it, I think of Australia, which I don't know if other people do, but for me, my Australian mind is like, yeah, that, that feels Aussie to me. Um, I love the Australian cover, um, because the lucky red envelope that is featured on it, uh, is filled with Australian iconography that... Yeah, there's like a cockatoo, there's a waratah, which is the state flower of the state of New South Wales. Um, And it's stuff that an Australian person would notice right away. And so it's a cover really for the Australian market, because if you're from anywhere else, like you might not pick out those details, but every Aussie I've shown the cover to has been like, oh yeah, I I see the cockatoo, I see the waratah. And so it's really for them. Um, And then the the British cover, like again, is really bold. Like the text is all in gold foil, um, there's something really dramatic about it. And so I think all three of them, you know, are, are super different, but I love them all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the contrast between the Australian cover, I mean, the Australian and UK cover compared to the American cover is that if you just pick up the American book, um, you don't know that it's about Asian Australians. Like there is like no hint of Asianness on the cover. Whereas with like except, the UK and Australian cover, yeah, except at the American cover, my name, and that's like, true, I, yes. And I and I, and that was something that I was I did think about, which is like no matter what the cover is, I have an Asian last name, and as soon as someone sees that, it will probably color how they see the cover. Um, so I felt very comfortable with it being, you know, a bolder, slightly more abstract cover that doesn't tell you right away hey this book is about Asians (laughs) because like well it's written by an Asian person so let's see what it's about and hopefully it wouldn't entice people into like flipping over the book to the back to read the synopsis yeah yeah I mean that's interesting that you say that because we read so many books by authors of Asian descent and like for me it's just like oh what is this book about because Asians can write anything that they want this book can be about anything but i guess for non-asian people they'll see like an asian name on the cover and they're like oh clearly this is going to be about like the joy luck club (laughs) right right yeah it's like we don't have that filter and uh yeah you just kind of reminded me of our privilege (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i also this is a late thank you but uh when you when your publisher sent us the advanced review copies that came with, you know, uh, Vietnamese pastries and cookies uh, from oh, Bombay yes. Bakery in in New York, and I just want to thank, say thank you, thank you for the sweets. Oh, I, I'm yeah, so I was glad really surprised to too. That. I was like, I was just like, what? Like, no one has sent us like baked goods with their uh, books before, so I was like, huh, there's a first for everything. When you were opening the cookie tins, were you afraid there might be sewing supplies inside? 
A little bit. I wasn't. <laughs> I was thinking about what I would be using this tin for later on. I it's so That's true. Supplies. I have a lot of tins. <laughs> yeah. I I think I use like some of the tins that I have in my house for like keys and jewelry because, you mm. know, growing up it's like don't throw anything out. Just recycle everything. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have a plastic bag full of plastic bags in my Me apartment. too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Will I ever use all of them? Probably not. But, but this you never know, so I you want to keep them. I will bequeath yes. them to my, to, to my future children. That will be their inheritance. <laughs> all right. I have one last question for you, and it's kind of more of like an author question, which is, you know, I, I found your book to be really well paced, like the, the mystery unravels in the satisfying pace. The climax is like I was telling you before we we started recording, I was like very shocked. I mean, essentially, your debut novel is a mystery. It's a detective story, right? It's, it's someone trying to unravel this mystery. Um, how was that experience of trying to figure out the pace of revealing the key clues to the case? Yeah, so I am not a planner. You know, I don't outline. Um, I can't think that far ahead. And in fact, my writing style is I do, when I was working on All That's Left Unsaid, I did 300 words a day. And each day, each time I sat down to write, I'd figure out like the next 200-ish words and, and it would just sort of evolve from there. So after I had my first draft, I was like, okay, I figured out the, the ending so now I have to go back and just tighten everything up, cut what doesn't belong, insert red herrings and clues. Um, you know, like the character Jimmy Carter at one point had his own chapter that was like 10,000 words long. And I really loved it, but I was like, this is not contributing to the mystery. It doesn't answer anything, nor does it drop a clue. And so I took that entire chapter and rolled him into Flora's chapter where he appears for like one paragraph. Um, but it was just sort of being ruthless in the editing phase and in the provision of reminding myself, what is the goal of this book? As the reader is going along, what are their expectations? You know, if they are expecting for there to be a clue in this chapter, but I'm just going on about this character's feelings for 50 pages, not great. <laughs> so it was like just scrutinizing everything that I had written and then like revising, rewriting and and getting it close to this like bit by bit. That's really surprising that you're not a planner because you're a journalist. And I think you're the first journalist turned novelist that I've talked to who does not outline because journalism is all about deadlines and word counts. And wow, that is... Like, that's really impressive that you were that fearless and could write 300 words not knowing what the next 300 words were going to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm good at meeting deadlines. But the lucky thing with this novel was that no one was waiting for it. No one was sitting around going, oh, I wonder what Tracy Lian in Kansas is, <laughs> is doing. Like, absolutely no one. And so I had no pressure on me. Um, we're, I'm now working on a second novel where there is pressure in the sense that like I have a deadline, um, but I'm just trusting in the process. You know, if doing 300 words a day got me the first novel, 300 words a day might get me a second novel too. <laughs> well, it was really well done. Uh, whatever your process is, it works and I'm excited for what comes next. Um, 
can you talk about your next project or is that still like hush hush? It's also much of it's hush hush. It's that I haven't really figured out what it is. So anything I tell you is just going to be like sloppiness. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Well, I trust in your process. So I can't wait (laughs) to read what you have next. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us on Books and Boba. Talk about your book. Again, thank you for the the cookies. They were very delicious as well. It took me a while to finally eat them because I was like, these are precious gifts from Tracy. I can't just like (laughs) scarf them down. I scarfed mine down. Like they lasted less than two days in my house. Um, Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was really wonderful. And that was Tracy Leanne, the author of All That's Left Unsaid. Um, man, Rira, that that conversation went a lot of places. Yeah, we have a lot of minor feelings and, of course, generational trauma. <laughs> Lots of ground to cover. Yeah, and definitely, like you mentioned, um, this book definitely touches on a lot of those minor feelings. And I'm looking forward to seeing what other people think about the book when it comes out. The book is releasing on September 13th, 2022. Um, And, you know, we are recording this podcast um, about a month in advance. So I'm not sure if it's going to be this week, next week, or last week. But the book is coming out on September 13th. So if our conversation piqued your interest in the book, definitely check it out. Um, I think it's worth reading and I hope uh, hope you have fun too. All right. So our September 2022 book club pick is You're Invited by Amanda Jayatissa. Um, and it's about a Sri Lankan woman who is now living in LA who learns that her former best friend is marrying her ex-boyfriend and then she gets accused of murder so lots of shenanigans uh we've had amanda on our show for uh my sweet girl and i know that she can write one hell of a thriller so i'm really excited to read this book yeah you sold this to me as crazy crazy rich asians meets gone girl and i i'm in i'm on yeah (laughs) all right we'll be discussing you're invited at the end of the month um, so, um, but if you have finished the book already, um, don't forget to leave a comment on our Goodreads forums. We always love to include uh, feedback from our members uh, in in our discussion episodes. Um, and don't forget, you can find all the books that are featured on this podcast on our Books and Boba online bookshop. Uh, any purchase you make on there does support your local bookstores as well as the Books and Boba podcast. So, just go to booksandboba.com and click on the bookshop link. Um, for our bookstore and I guess with that that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba thank you once again to Tracy Leanne for joining us and having such a wonderful conversation her book again is All That's Left Unsaid available at Booksellers Everywhere on September 13th 2022 thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time bye everyone everyone. thanks for listening to Books and Boba this podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. 
Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.